Welcome to the Rainbow Room. Our podcast about writing, representation, and gay stuff. This is episode 14, Ryan O'Connell, part one. This episode is marked as explicit. Hey everyone, welcome to the season finale of season one of our podcast. Woo! I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And y'all, guess what? We have <laughs> Brian O'Connell on our podcast. Woo! God, a season finale of the drama. I love it. No pressure we are at all. Stops. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we gotta have cliffhangers. We gotta have pregnancies. We gotta have a wedding. So, Ryan, just to warn you, we simp our guests pretty hard. My all my experience meeting famous gay men has been like playing very coy about it or like embarrassed. So, just I'm gonna give you a heads up. I'm gonna be lathering love on you because I'm obsessed with you, bitch. Oh. <laughs> away honey i i don't i don't object ryan barely even needs an introduction but let me give it to you anyway he created wrote starred in special he wrote this amazing book which i will show just by looking at him which is amazing and then also wrote and co-starred in the queerest folk reboot so just like such an incredible resume and then also on top of that is also an activist and has won all these awards and like honestly you're such a good fit for this podcast because uh, i feel like your thoughts on the importance of representation mirrors are so closely so i i'm so excited to have you on this yeah you're against it right <laughs> yeah i'm you sick and tired of seeing <laughs> people on the screen i don't want any of them unless it's me <laughs> thank god pride month is almost over <laughs> it doesn't matter we do have a fun question that we like to ask all our guests just to start right. things off and the purpose of this question is to both get to know a little bit more about you personally and also kind of paint a rich tapestry of actual gay people's lives what's the gayest thing you did this week oh and we'll, we'll all answer if you got a hit right now you can go otherwise we'll go first wow the gayest thing i did this week well it's only monday so really <laughs> I, I only have today to go off of right well or you can do the past seven days but if you want to constrict yourself if you do enough gay things that you have a smorgasbord to choose from for today that's fine as well <laughs> fire um the, okay the past seven days okay let's see um last night i had like an impromptu dinner party with some friends and i dressed entirely in the row to really give like Nancy Myers cosplay fantasy and we had like a nice little peach salad something very summery and we had like Chet Baker playing and it, it felt very homosexual it felt very like grown up homosexual who has his shit together owns a yeah. home and is like ready to serve you things on ceramics do you know what I mean like that felt very gay um yeah that's giving to- like popular gay chic like I love that it was very very chic absolutely i'll go briefly so it was pride weekend in seattle so it was amazing i started the weekend off by doing a foundation crossfit class which was very gay uh it's like the whole gym is gay and regretted it because my legs were tired and sore for all the walking i did not at pride parade well that too but also just like at these gay events so much walking around like bopping around flirting with people at the beaches at the pride parties it was fun it felt like a season finale in and of itself because it's like every gay person I've ever met in Seattle I was seeing I was like we're all here we're all doing it I saw Richie is that a good thing or a bad thing I haven't so I'm new to this city I've only been here like three months four months so I haven't lived here long enough for that to be a bad thing yet oh good wow let's let's hope that lasts for at least a few more months no yeah that'd be amazing <laughs> Eric daddy-o gayest thing you did this week the 
biggest thing I did this week. Um, today I uh, went to therapy and then took a really long nap after and then ordered sushi. And in that, it, in my brain, that feels so gay. Cause maybe it's just like, it was like a form of self care, but that felt very like dreamlike and silly. Um, I think I this is that. more, less telling of your opinions on homosexuality and more telling of your opinions of straight men, that this is not something that is going to therapy and doing self care. Yeah, yeah. straight men don't eat sushi. I don't think, and they don't take naps. No, um, they just don't take care of themselves in the slightest, and that is why they are the problem. Um, if you're here and you're straight, thank you so much for coming. We hope you enjoyed the sushi later. I love you. Turn off the podcast now. I say straight thirty-five is gay forty-five. You know what I mean? Mm. They don't they don't age well. All right, so Ryan, we on this podcast we talk about representation a lot, and we talk about like what basically we're seeing on our end. But neither Eric or I, or I think really any of our previous guests are in the industry it's so cool and incredible that you're in the industry you know like we've really i feel like been treating this like a black box like we see what comes out we're making our own analysis but like from the inside obviously without like uh breaking any ndas or whatever uh what can you tell us about your experience of like writers rooms in general existing as a gay man in writers rooms and obviously you have also you exist as a disabled man in writers rooms i know adds a whole like other element um yeah, yeah i'll keep it broad for now no i mean uh thank you you know i i'm very much in the industry and the industry is family to me the business hashtag the business hashtag writer slash uh you know agent manager lawyer uh <laughs> no um i you know i've been i've been writing for tv since 2013 so it's been almost 10 years and it it's changed a lot in some ways it stayed exactly the same i mean hollywood will always be a toxic bitch no matter what like that will always be happening um no but, it can change right i mean it is changing but it's it's incremental i mean i i I, like, I think Hollywood would like to think that it's changed more than it actually has. Um, Hollywood has a good publicist. Uh, you know, when I was writing for TV, like in 2013, uh, like it was sort of like they were just discovering that women were funny. You know what I mean? It was like the era <laughs> of, of like Broad City, Bridesmaids, Amy Schumer. Like it was like that was, you know, revolutionary. Um, so being gay and disabled, like people just did not know how to compute. I remember at like one of my first generals, which a, a general is a meeting that you take that will usually not amount to anything. It's sort of just a way that an exec can like fill their days uh, and feel like they're doing something. And then you will go there with the hopes that it will result in a job, but really you'll just be handed a water bottle and then hit traffic at 3 p.m. going back to the east side of Los Angeles. <laughs> But but basically, like what the exec was like saying to me, like, what do you what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to make? I'm like, um, I would love to make a show about a gay disabled person, and it was truly like crickets. And they were like, that's cool. We're actually really into like gay zombies right now. Like, what's your take on that? And I was like, oh my god, honey. Like, truly, I wish I was a zombie right now, and I was not alive for this conversation. Oh my uh, god, it was pretty disturbia. It really, really was. I mean, here's the thing, and this is not me bragging or anything. There really was no point of reference for someone like me to navigate Hollywood. There was no, there was no blueprint. There was no, this is how you do things. And so I kind of was just going into it with like blind delusional tenacity that only a Virgo could have. Um, and Hell yeah. it was, it was really, it was rough. It was like, I mean, special, you know, we went out and we pitched it in 2015 and it was this, you know, the pitch was really good. And I remember we would leave every meeting being like, we sold that basically like the people were on the floor 
were dying laughing. And then everyone passed one by one. Uh, I remember one exec told my producer that they wanted to, you know, make it, but they were scared for their job. I mean, this stuff is very real. Like, do you know what I mean? And that is incredible. Wait, they said they were scared for their job if they made it. Yeah, I mean, because, because that person was not, you know, the head of the network. And so basically if they had greenlit my show, it would have fallen on them. And if it had failed, they might've been out of a job. I mean, it's all very connected. It's all very high stakesy and sad and weird. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was it was really the la- the first few years years were really tough and I spent a lot of time like being unemployed like you know and also like uh, in the writers guild or just when you when you're staffing a writers room there's something called a diversity hire which is TBA problematic where basically uh, if you count as diversity you like you can get hired and you won't cost you won't your um, salary won't come out of the showrunner's budget so when a showrunner is like staffing a room they're given basically a budget and that's how you can figure out how you can afford, you know, how many executive producers, how many staff writers, da, da, da. But if you're a quote unquote diversity hire, you're not coming out of that budget. So essentially you're seen as free. And this was to incentivize, you know, having a more diverse room. But really what ends up happening is that diversity hires get staffed. And then the next year uh, they do cost money. They do come out of the budget. And then a lot of them won't get rehired. And so they end up coming uh. out It's also just like problematic as fuck. The fact that it even exists that there needs to be incentive to hire them is like zero dark 30. So it's like, it's, it's not great. But what was interesting about it also was, you know, I was being gay and disabled. I thought I counted as diversity <laughs> and I was told, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, are I'm, you serious? I'm basically seen as a straight white guy. So, ah. um, which I love. I mean, please, iconic. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I celebrate it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, what the hell? I kind of am. Um, <laughs> no, so, you know, but basically what, what I'm trying to say is it's sort of, it's my large, it, it's indicative of my larger frustration, which is that disability is rarely, rarely included in conversations about diversity. And it's very frustrating to live in a culture that is becoming, you know, more progressive and more woke and more aware of spotlighting marginalized communities and disability, which like one in four people identify as disabled is largely left off the menu. I mean, if you think about it, like there were like 4,000 shows about scammers, which probably represent like what, 0.000001% of the population. And there's 4,000 shows about them. And like disability is one in four and we have no show. I mean, there's no air to special. There's no, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's maddening. It's very, very frustrating. And so luckily special did eventually get made, but honey, it was blood, sweat, and queers and it took four years door to door and the first season was made for two dollars it was non <laughs> it was non-union which is insane it what? was not uh, yeah i mean i probably shouldn't say that but yes it was and uh it was very very it felt like we snuck in like while the bouncer was asleep you know what i mean um but whatever because it got my show made and it showed the world what i could do so you know you kind of i kind of just had to do what i had to do to get there um but it's still it's weird because it's like you know it's funny you're catching me at a very interesting time where I've just had a book come out and, you know, Queer's Folk come out. And, you know, part of me is always like, okay, when does it get easier? Like, when do I start getting like incoming calls? Like, when do I start getting like asked to produce things? Blah, blah, blah. And it kind of never does. And it's like, it's just part of the nature of it where you're okay, just- wait, Okay, wait, like Queer's Folk reboot just came out. Like- <laughs> No, no, I know, I know. But like, but I, I, this is not my first rodeo. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I've been here for a little bit, you know what I mean? And so- 
you know, basically it's like, I've created this lane for myself out of scratch, like from scratch. And yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like, it's great. And it's like, I, I've really been really grateful and I've been very fortunate to do that. But there's still like a profound lack of imagination from everyone else on what to do with me. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, I exist in my own little utopia lane, but outside of that lane, it's still a little spooky spaghetti. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, it, it totally makes sense. You There's, in just by looking at him, your book, you have this really um, interesting, and when I read it, I just imagine the main character is you. And obviously this isn't just your life, but so much of it feels like so personal and specific that I'm like, oh, this has to be his own story. And the one part that really struck me is when you talk about like your journey in becoming a successful writer and getting your bosses in the writing industry to like you is basically like, I smiled, I performed really well. They said, they said dance monkey and I danced and I just did a damn good job and I had to. And is that an authentic part of your journey? Yeah, I mean, I've always been like a type A workhorse. Like I I always Mm -hmm. have and I've always been very aware that I had to prove myself in maybe a ways that a mediocre straight white male wouldn't, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like from a very young age, I kind of learned how to be disarming and how to kind of cover the vegetables and sugar because I knew I kind of became in like unconventional packaging that people would be TBD about and it would be my job to make them feel at ease. Now, it's interesting is like that skill has brought me a lot of amazing things and like, but at the same time, it's like super frustrating to always have to like win over every room you enter. You know what I mean? Like sort of like, honey, like why don't you win me over? Yeah, no, 100%. one thing I wanted to ask was, um, oh yeah, sorry. The, uh, you said like, it was so, so hard to get special made. And like, that was basically, was was that the first piece of like gay media that you got made? Yeah, I mean, I had not, no. Yeah, I, I'd only written on a few TV shows. Um, yeah. So yeah, not I had not done anything myself, no. And I mean, it was also the first show I ever went out with too. But like mm. the way special got made was really like, it truly was like a backdoor moment moment um where it was like everyone passed and then we went to this like weird digital incubator within warner brothers called stage 13 that was like doing 15 minute episodes of by the way i didn't even know like there wasn't even really a home for it it was all very kind of strange (laughs) and very very, like brave new world and it was sort of like i mean and i was at a point where i was so desperate to make it i would have done it in any kind of iteration i just wanted to see it get made and so i wrote these eight 15 episodes for warner brothers and then and, and then we went to Netflix and we showed them all the scripts and then Netflix greenlit it. I mean, they had, what was interesting is they had passed on it three years earlier when we pitched it to them. But also in Hollywood years, like three years is like 80,000 turnovers. Like truly like no one lasts that long at a job in Hollywood. So like what's, what's good in 2015 could be completely different even like two months later. You know what I mean? So it's all very weird. And that's why everything truly, truly, truly to me is about timing and hitting the zeitgeist at the right exact moment. And it's like, like, yes, being hardworking and being talented, that's all great. But truly it is timing that is like the biggest thing, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, they say luck is when opportunity meets uh, preparation. So like, it sounds like you're constantly working, constantly making sure you are prepared. So like when that timing does come, you're there for it. Like, Yeah, and it was cool because Netflix like let me make the fucking weird gay horny show that I made like they like I mean I will say this like Netflix for all of their kind of weird stuff I mean like for me creatively it was like a dream they truly let me do whatever I wanted to do and quite frankly like I would have much rather had done two seasons of a tv show that was like a hundred percent my baby without anyone 
fucking with it than I would have done it like, you know, four seasons anywhere else with it being watered down or something. You know what I mean? I didn't want it like I was really scared that someone would chop the dick off this show. And yeah, yeah. Uh, like no one did. Like they were very DTF with like whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> so love that. Is it like uh, just in general, like even before special, was it hard getting yourself in writer's rooms? Like as a, yeah, as a it person was, you were? Like, was that yes. like? <laughs> yes, it was really hard. I mean, what was interesting is no. So what was interesting is like, I moved to LA from New York. I was a blogger for a website called Thought Catalog. I had a book deal, which, you know, eventually became the TV version uh, special. And um, I got an agent because I had written this pilot that was very bad, but like funny, but bad. Um, <laughs> and I, I remember my agent was like, so like, what kind of shows do you like? And I, I really like that show Awkward and MTV. And uh, he was like, oh, that's staffing right now. Like, and then I got a meeting and I got staffed within two weeks of living in LA. And oh my God. <laughs> I, I just thought that's how it was supposed to work. I had no idea. I mean, I actually think my like naivete around it was like worked in my favor because I just like didn't, I wasn't even like worried. I was just like, okay, this makes sense. Cool, love and light, you know what I mean? And then when I worked on two seasons of Awkward, I did not work for a year after that. And that was, and then it was sort of like, Oh, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. That that was extremely rare what happened. Like that, like, and I remember actually my first day on Awkward, like all the other staff writers were like, where did you come from? And I'm like, New York. And they're like, okay, but like, so you just moved here? I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. And they're like, oh, so like what? I'm like, yeah, I was a blogger. And they're like, so, and I was like, yeah, this was like my first meeting. And they were like, truly dead. It was like truly death stares. I mean, obviously I won them over in two seconds and we actually all became very close. But, uh, but good for but, you. But honey, tap dancing for my dinner. Are you kidding me? I got, I, honey, I got the posters to, show, to prove it. Um, but it was, it was, I just did not know. I really did not know. And then, and then when, when awkward ended, oh honey, she found out. Wow. <laughs> it was really, really difficult. I remember, I, there were so many moments where I truly thought my career was over. Like I remember um, meeting on that show Speechless on ABC, which actually featured a character with cerebral palsy. And I was like, okay, if I literally can't get this job, I can't get any job. And of course I met on Speechless uh, and I did not get the job. And I remember just being like, well, that's a wrap on me. I can't even get a job on the CP comedy show. Like what the fuck else am I going to do? Um, you know, I think the great thing about doing this for a long time, look, it's still a fickle bitch and you never know where your next paycheck's coming from. And you never completely feel like, oh, I can rest easy for a little bit. But I do know that there's just ebbs and flows. And I don't ever think that like, you know, getting a staffing meeting on like, you know, you know, uh, a dog and a pizza place coming to ABC is going to be like the life or death of my career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and sometimes one opportunity that should be a good fit or like perfect fit or a, an easy get for you isn't available. And then you end up get later getting one that's like, oh, I didn't even think I was going to get this. Like, totally. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like you just have to be like present and like be working and like be productive. And then all the other shit, there's so much you can't control and you really have to like namaste and not let it go. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let's talk about the Career as Folk reboot. How did that um, come about for you? So Stephen Dunn, the creator and showrunner, uh, he like 
like special. So when special came out, um, our agents set us up. Tell as old as time. <laughs> um, and we had this amazing dinner where we just got along so, so well. And he was telling me that he was actually trying to get Curious Folk made. Now, making anything gay in Hollywood takes approximately 40,000 years. It truly is always an uphill battle, even when you have an existing piece of IP like Curious Folk. Even, so, even now? Even now? Yes, yes. That I'm is incredible. You, I'm telling you, it's way more homophobic than people realize. It really, it's like, it's, I'm telling you, it's a little spooky. It's not how it seems. It's still really, really difficult to get something made that doesn't, again, star a scammer that's already been featured in a podcast and a documentary. <laughs> yeah, just a, a quick tangent off of that. Like, that's one of the reasons it's so cool to talk to you because it's like, uh, we've had some amazing guests who have made some really funny stuff and a lot of them are like big on TikTok, right? Which I feel like right, right now is kind of well, like- so am I. Just kidding. <laughs> big I've literally never been on it. <laughs> <laughs> you had me scared. I was like, oh my God, wait, did I miss something? No, I'm like, are you kidding me? I've literally never gone on it. I'm like scared. Just looking at it gives me brain damage, but go on. Mm. Well, what I'll say in favor of it is like, it does feel like in some way it's democratized attention yes. and like, like yes. people are getting their gay content to reach gay audiences because it's kind of like bypassing the need for like any of the other stuff. Now, granted, it's still like nowhere near the reach of Netflix right. uh, or Peacock, right? It's just like, right. but still, it's like, um, I feel like that's kind of what we're seeing. It's like, uh, we're seeing that there is a market because like yes. people are consuming that content. So I'm um, hopefully that spreads more and I'm like, so amazing that you're doing this in the like actually on these uh on, on tv yeah no i mean i feel like you know old lady rose from titanic it's been 84 years but um <laughs> i i do think you're right with tiktok and, and instagram and all that stuff it kind of it doesn't remove the gatekeepers but it, it allows people to be seen that ordinarily would not be seen through the tr traditional pathways of getting a tv show or getting staffed or any of that stuff so that part of it is very cool yeah anyway so you were meeting uh but like good on you that you've been able to do it through the traditional pathways that's amazing and like getting your insight on how that works and stuff is is crazy well, so you honestly it's like also like important like I feel like I just I've been very lucky to have like a few people just like very much like people with power like believe in me and believe in my voice and like because so Hollywood is addicted to a point of reference they need to know that some, that this formula has worked before so obviously when you're pitching something that's gay and disabled they have literally nothing to turn to mm. and I think also I mean special season one was low stakes because again as I said it was made for two dollars so I feel like we were able to do whatever because it was truly like you know a uh, low risk high reward you know what I mean um but it, like you know having someone like Jim Parsons who produced special like kind of anoint me in a way and be like okay I love Ryan he has something to say that meant something you know what I mean or like I'm working on Greg Ber with Greg Berlanti who's this um mega tv producer and director and writer yeah um, I love Simon right yeah I love Simon yep yeah, he's he's producing the film adaptation of just by looking at him and what, what? yeah i didn't yeah. know that yeah it's exciting so so you know he's actually he actually we met when i was 27 i just moved to la i'd written this pilot called being gay is gay which i'm sure was trash but anyway <laughs> he, he actually he actually wanted to produce it back then and of course it died at warner brothers because they were like gay confused anyway <laughs> Um, but, but Greg, Greg always believed in me and honestly, like in having someone of his stature and of his power really kind of be like, no, 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 
Ryan, come with me. Like that stuff is invaluable. Like I like people like Jim and Greg, like taking me under their wing has been like, you know, it's made all the difference in my career. I really think because again, like there's no point of reference for someone like me. So it takes someone like Greg or Jim to be like, no, 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 pay attention to this person. You know what I mean? That is so cool. I love that. And, yeah. and thank you for shout- giving shout outs too on the podcast. I love when we like highlight these other amazing people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so then you, uh, you met with Stephen Dunn. That's all happening. Live, laugh, love. I go shoot season two of special. The pandemic happens. And like, I don't even know what's happening with Pierce Folk. Like, like our dinner was like, I would say in like June, 2019. So like so much time has passed. Oh yeah. So, so anyway, that's all to say that like when uh, I went back uh, and finished special um, in October, 2020, pre-vaccines, I went from like literally not seeing a single soul except for my boyfriend and then literally just being like, sure, I guess I'll just be surrounded by a crew of people and... (laughs) <laughs> and I mean, honey, I was like, I'm going to literally have to die for my art. It was very stressful, but oh my God, but no, but we, we got through it. And honestly, it was so, I felt so lucky because being able to make something and be surrounded by people, um, like for a month in that horrible, horrible time was like, I felt almost like survivor's guilt. Like I got to go to work every day and like make something, you know what I mean? Whereas before I was just like refreshing my, you know, my Twitter and like feeling so depressed. So I felt really grateful for that anyway whatever the point is is that um special season two came out and like right when it came out steven was like oh queer spoke got greenlit like i'm staffing the room and i was like oh this again honey timing 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 Mm -hmm. um because i was i was kind of figuring out what i wanted to do after special because it was canceled and so uh i met with steven and i thought i was going to just be a writer on it and so i was like no no i also want you to be in the show as well so it's so funny because i was never supposed to star in special i would say that happened with both right yeah yes yes very relatable accidentally starring in two tv shows back to back i mean (laughs) very i mean feel like really like don't cry for me argentina you know what i mean um but it was funny because you know i had a lot of imposter syndrome around acting you know like I acting was something I never consciously wanted to pursue now with hindsight I can say that I always loved performing but I just didn't to to want to be a performer being gay and disabled it felt like what's the fucking point there's literally no roles for me there's no pathway for me so it wasn't even like it wasn't even like when we were pitching special when I wasn't attached to star and I was just like "Mm, I wish I had the courage to say that I went to star in it it didn't even occur to me which is like also just like wild and just like speaks to like you know systemic oppression and how powerful it is and all that stuff so um we met he wanted me to star in it and I was like okay like maybe maybe I can do this acting thing again this is that's exciting and um yeah I kind of went from there and you know now I'm I'm bravely coming out of the acting closet and I'm saying that I love acting and I can't yes yes so hashtag brave all it took was starring in two TV shows for me to get there. <laughs> so for all the yeah, time. for all the aspiring actors, please use my story okay? <laughs> <laughs> to inspire and and don't you know like it's if I can do it, so can you. You know, I think the key is to just not want it, and then people will want you even more. I mean, I think there is like a lot to be said for writing your own roles. Like if you are a good writer, oh, are you, you should leverage. Yeah. Oh my god! Well, first of all, like when special came out, I would occasionally get these like uh, requests to audition for things. The roles were abysmal. I mean, it truly was like a joke. I was like, mm. l- literally all I was getting was like Lucy Hale's piano teacher on a Netflix movie. It was like so dark. And I was just like, I remember the first time I ever got um, 
sides for something or like for to audition for something I looked at the sides and I was like oh this is really bad can I rewrite this and my agent was like no you, you can't rewrite it you did not write it you have to go say the lines as written I was like but they're bad <laughs> and they're like hey, I know but you're not the writer you're an actor and I was like oh no 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 okay like <laughs> If I have to actually do these lines as written, I just will not do it. So, uh, so yeah, I just don't really audition for things. Again, I don't get asked that often, but when I do, it's it's so scary out there. It really is. The the quality of material for gay stuff is still not cheap. Oh yeah, I imagine. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so you actually you mentioned this on Las Culturistas that you weren't planning to like play the role and like watching it and just like all the watching your content that's like so mind-blowing to me because it you're so like obviously you wrote the role but also it feels like made for you I can't imagine anyone else in the role yeah I mean I think you know it was definitely kind of I think a collaboration between me and Steven Steven had a very kind of fixed idea of who this person was and I mean the character of Julian is very specific I mean he is a flight attendant obsessed mall obsessed likes getting his dick sucked in public restrooms I mean like this man uh is a very specific person so that came from Steven's brain and I think kind of where I came in was sort of just like fleshing out the details of his psychology being disabled and and you know him kind of being a regimented very routine person who lives this kind of myopic life on purpose and then I think the arc of the season of having his like law walls come down is really fun and you know also through Stephen's direction like I kind of initially my instinct was to sort of play him kind of more naive like kind of similar to Ryan in special and he was like oh no no he's a dry dry bitch like he, is, <laughs> he, you know what I mean? And that's his defense mechanism. So that it was really fun to play someone super salty uh, because I relate. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still so adorable. Um, he is. But honestly, sometimes I think being disabled and having glasses, I could literally be murdering people in cold blood. And they're like, he's so cute. Adorable. <laughs> no, I, love the, I love the way he kills people. It's just like so freaking cute. He's so no cute. No one's doing it. No one's doing it like him. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my God, squeeze him. <laughs> yeah but just to play off of that though like i um you know sometimes uh people that look different or have like these um disabilities they are portrayed to be like people with like a really rough exterior who's like oh no one's gonna fuck with me and we even see that in queer as fuck right but you get both sides of the coin right you see someone who really like demands and commands a presence and then you see someone who's like i'm just trying to exist bro like yeah well that's i mean it's so funny when, when steven initially wanted me to star in the show uh, my own rap poison brain was like wait but there's already Marvin how can there be two of us I mean I was stunned to have two disabled characters in the cast that is like that's just not done you know what I mean and so as a writer it was so liberating because Marvin and Julian are so different they really are but yeah yeah what was really cool though was also kind of tracing their commonalities because I think by virtue of being disabled and queer they're gonna have some fucking things in common you know what I mean They they can be very different people inherently but I think their baggage and um I think they both have intimacy issues that manifest in different ways like uh, it was really fun to kind of draw those parallels between those two characters and I also loved that they weren't really friends because I think that's also very true within marginalized populations like honey we can eat our own you know what I mean yeah definitely uh just another cool thing about you playing the role is apparently I think you you've said this that there's a lot of disabled roles that end up not being played by disabled actors right oh I mean I'm sure they are yeah I mean, it's like, I, I'm shocked when there's 
even disabled anything. But yeah, I mean, people are still, people are still, yeah. I mean, there's like, I'm thinking of like a few instances, like that's definitely something that's still done. But I think that's slowly changing. I think people are like understanding it's not chic. Obviously, like, you know, we're, we're all, the conversation around gay actors playing gay roles, you know, um, like all that stuff. I think that it's like kind of trickling down to disabled characters as well. But unfortunately, the disabled characters just still aren't really written. So it's sort of like, you know, they only have so many options to be problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, let's worry about getting the representation first and we'll hash the rest out later. Yeah, they're like, you should be grateful that we even are doing this. Hello. It's like, oh my God, sick, gross. (laughs) Eric, did you have anything you wanted to to add? Um, I guess... You kind of touched on this, but I was always, I've always been intrigued about like the 15 minute aspect of specials first season. Oh, and, I needed it. Yeah, I was always, that's, you were, I mean, you were talking about how like they passed. So then I was like, oh, did they just give him the bare minimum and just like be like, yeah, sure, you get, Whoa. you get 15 minutes, kid. No, no. I mean, like what happened was like I, I wrote those things for stage 13, but like stage 13 didn't have a platform. So like there was no way for it to exist. And then Netflix bought those scripts as is. Now, granted, writing those scripts was literal hell. I mean, I was breaking a season of TV all by myself and I was doing it in 15 minute episodes, which like, you have no time. You really have no, no time. And like, I love season one. I'm very proud of it. I feel like we made something good despite given no resources. But like, I was adamant about season two being half hour because there just wasn't enough time to let things breathe there wasn't like the character of Kim in particular was very much like the plucky sidekick that was there to like root on the main character's journey but you never saw her on her own which I hated and so season two was really about giving both the characters of Kim like the real estate that I thought they deserved and um yeah it was I mean Netflix did not like it because the budget went from like you know two dollars to five dollars um but uh but like again like I I just felt like season one wasn't like representative of what I could do because I felt like I was just bumping up so many um constraints so I was like like season two season two is something I'm just so so proud of because I just feel like it's what the show was always meant to be and like what it should have been in season one um so even though it's over and I'm sad about that like they gave me exactly what I wanted I mean I really held their feet to the fire and was like I'm not coming back if we do 15 minute episodes I'm just not and Cindy Holland who was the exact there at the time who's queer I really really championed me and um again it's like gay people showing up for gay people it's important you know are you um are you like film school educated at all or like tv writing educated okay because I was always intrigued because (laughs) yeah like with film school it's just so like when you learn tv writing it's like oh you're doing a half hour pilot so the fact that you just had to be like well no even if you like like tried to like go and use a formula in regards to like a half hour you couldn't do that you had to like just completely rewrite the script and it was embarrassingly hard I mean here's the thing like I always knew I had a voice and I Mm could be funny like those are the two things I knew I could do but structure was the last thing for me to learn and it's the last thing for most people to learn actually like Mm -hmm. you really only learn it through practice and like being in writers rooms and breaking so many stories but like Mm -hmm. breaking season one of special took me like truly I would say a year to do Mm -hmm. and it's because I just didn't know what I was doing I was still pretty inexperienced and now after having done that season of TV by myself I am like a structure fucking whiz like I, I <laughs> like I wrote just by looking at him as an exercise of just a thousand words a day I did not have an outline mm-hmm. so just by looking at him was just written off the cuff and I and I would not have been able to do that if I, I didn't break season one of special by like because I just now 
now understand inherently like the beats of a story and I know how to build things. I know how to seed this here to pay it off here. I mean, it's truly like doing a math fucking problem. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, and plus novels are like less, novels are less restrictive than TV and film. TV and film is so oppressive sometimes because it's like, it's so economical. So it's like, you really have to make every fucking line of dialogue count and like every piece of dialogue needs to get you to somewhere else in the story or it needs to be setting something up further along that can be like a callback so it just becomes very very like it just becomes very one plus one equals two so I think that's also why I liked kind of diving into the novel because it felt like liberating and like luxurious because like even though story is story there there really are no rules for a novel yeah there's so much be- room to breathe and stuff like yeah, yeah I cannot believe you basically yeah. I cannot believe you basically improvised this novel <laughs> I did I, I improved it it was straight up improv. I mean, like, I I just, I feel like if I had planned it, I just don't think I would have done it. I think if I had sat down being like, I'm going to write a novel, I think I would have just been paralyzed by the enormity of it all. Like, I really think just, like, I was tricking myself. I think subconscious, like, I wanted to write a novel. Absolutely. Like, subconscious, that's what I wanted to do. But I think conch, I was like, oh, this is just a fun little thing that I'm doing every day. Like, stave off existential dread and quarantine. And like, and I, I really, really, really was convinced that I would hit a wall. Like I thought for sure, like 30 days in, I would just be like, I would run out of steam. Cause like basically after every day, I would just write myself a little cliffhanger that like tomorrow me would have to solve. And I was like, surely this will stop. I'm like, surely like I will stop solving these little riddles that I leave myself at the end of the day. Um, and I just never did. And I like, I truly, I mean, the whole experience of writing that book was witchy as fuck. Like I, I have never experienced something like that before. It truly just like came out of me like conduit style where it was just like, blah, and it was just like, it was incredible. Like I, I, I've never had something like that before. I mean, I clearly had a lot to get off my chest. <laughs> yeah. Is there like some, besides just being a quarantine activity, was there something that like drove you? Cause you know, you've made other work, but was there something that drove you like, I want to write this story or this is a story we need? Well, I definitely wanted to do a story about being in a toxic writer's room. I wanted to tackle addiction in various forms. Um, other than that, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. At the time, I, I so I am sober. I've been sober for two years now. And- uh, Wow, congrats. Thank you, thank you. Um, and so when I was writing the book though, I was not sober. And so like everyone, my drinking kind of took a nosedive in quarantine. And um, I had been kind of in a problematic relationship with alcohol for a couple of years that I wanted to change desperately but just didn't know how and didn't really have the tools and I kind of initially started writing this thing as a way to voice all these kind of feelings and fears I had around my own drinking that I was too afraid to admit to myself so I thought if I put it in Elliot's noggin like I felt like I was sort of like casting a spell where I was like like once you see you can't unsee and I was like if I'm brutally honest with myself vis-a-vis this character I think I will quit drinking and I did I quit drinking halfway through writing the book so Hell yeah. God, Amazing. that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's chic. It's chic. And honestly, like quitting drinking was like almost like skipping levels on a video game. Like it was just sort of like, I immediately, I mean, it was crazy. Like everything just got so much better. I got so much hotter, which is like the most important thing. Oh um, my God, shut up. And I mean, I lost like literally 30 pounds. Although like whatever, love your body, XOXO. But like I- <laughs> uh, For our listeners who can't see Ryan right now, he looks so hot. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you. I came out as hot a year ago and it was really good. Happy pride. I thought the hot community really welcomed me. Um, no, but I mean, it's like, you know, I think, you know, before I, it was so funny because before I was addicted to the gym, I would work out like six days a week. And like, when I would tell people that they'd be like, really? Because <laughs> oh, like, no. I, I was drinking a bottle of wine every single night. So it was deleting any kind of gains, but I would go for mental health reasons. And, uh, but then when I quit drinking, it was sort of like, it, again, it was like reading, like reaching maximum potential, which as a Virgo, of course, I'm like so horny for. I'm like, like, I love it. I'm like, okay, let's see what I can do now. Let's that's what I can do now. Um, uh-huh. But it was really, really empowering. You know, I felt like, you know, I felt like a big chunk of my life belonged to alcohol. And I, it just felt like once I quit it, it was like everything belonged to me. Even the bad parts, they belonged to me. I felt a profound sense of ownership and it felt really, really empowering. That's amazing. It's also really interesting because Elliot going on his journey feels very self-aware at times of his problems, which doesn't make them go away. But he's No, like, no. It's a, isn't that a line in Queer Spoke where it's like being self-aware about bad behavior doesn't excuse bad behavior? I didn't write that. I think Jacqueline Moore wrote that. But yeah, that's, that's a great line. It is. I mean, it's very real. I mean, I was very self-aware I was very aware of my drinking. I was very like, I would, you know, I knew that it was not good and I just didn't know how to change it. It's also discussions around alcohol in our culture. It's so fucking binary. It's like either you're like crashing your car, burning down friendships, like getting fired at work, or you're totally fine, babe, have another rosé. And so it's like, there were like, because we worship so much of the altar of booze, were basically taught that the only reason to quit drinking is if your life has totally been burnt to the ground. And, you know, I just think that as a culture, we need to think more critically about alcohol and how we consume it. Because I don't think, I did not hit a rock bottom. I mean, my rock bottom was like, what, spilling red wine on my acne measure tea? Like, I mean, it's like, you know, like, give me a break. But like, the whole point is like, I didn't have to get to that rock bottom. I didn't have to get there. You know what I mean? Um, So I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm basically like radicalized from kind of like anti-alcohol TBQH, but um, you know, I don't want to freak people out. <laughs> Thank you for being vulnerable and coming out as so many things today. You've come out as hot. You've come out as an actor. You've come out as anti-alcohol. <laughs> oh, well, it's, pri- it's Pride Month. And <laughs> I have pride in how hot I am. You know what I mean? <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm hot. First and foremost. And <laughs> don't called, forget that. And that's called intersectionality. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, going back to Eric's question about like, so you didn't do natural film or you didn't do film school. Is this a typical route at all for writers? Like you started as a, a blogger, a blogger, or sorry, a blogger. Yeah, no, there's no, no, there's but no. But you did get an agent. I did. I got an agent through my book agent. So my book agent who did, who sold my first book, I wrote a pilot. She liked it. She sent it to an agent at UTA who represented me. Yes, that's how I got it. Whenever people ask me how to break into the biz, I get so anxious because my path was not traditional a lot of people's aren't but also I knew so here's the thing too like I am a fucking type a Virgo from hell and so I always have a little bit of a five-year plan going on I knew with my disability being an assistant was not the look um so I knew that it was like not going to be me like fetching someone's coffee and then spilling it all over them you know what I mean like that was just not going to work and so I was very very aware that like I was like okay I want to like leverage whatever popularity I have as a blogger which lol but like in 2012 it was a different landscape it really was like it was like when people would get like book deals from like viral tweets you know what I mean so there was like a real thing of maximizing it and 
And um, I really, really, really wanted to write this book with the hopes of adapting it to TV. So like my five-year plan was like, get this book deal, write a pilot, use it to get this agent. Like, I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't so methodical, but it was like in the background of my brain where I was like, okay, this step can lead to this step. Da, 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 da. And it really worked out that way. But again, everyone is different. I just knew that my pathway would have to be way different than everyone else's. You know what I mean? 100%. <laughs> like and the fact that you're able to, as you said, you have so much working against you and to the fact that people were afraid to make your stuff out of fear of getting fired right so it's like yeah. take whatever their path will get you there yeah absolutely but i also love that you had like yeah you really thought about it you know you kind of had that five-year plan thing yeah i mean i i've always been very 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 ambitious like i am and i feel like i'm coming out as ambitious too i i think that <laughs> i think that people i think that ambition has this weird ugly connotation to it where it's like i i feel like i read so many profiles of like celebrities um and people who are successful who are just like i don't know i was just walking down the street one day and then bling bling bloom bloom i got a tv show why i'm stoned right now does anyone want cheese fries like it's literally <laughs> like it's like it's actually insane because while there are exceptions of like people truly being plucked from obscurity so much of this is hard work preparation tenacity like laser focused and it's like people don't really want to admit that because it's not chic it's much funnier and more much like less i guess shameful to be like lol this is happening crazy like rather than be like i wanted this for myself i worked really hard and i fucking got it you know what i mean but like i've always been very upfront about like no like i i wanted these things and i worked really hard and like i'm a very ambitious person and like this is not I did not get any of these things from just like, you know, like laying in bed. Although I do spend a lot of time laying in bed, but. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It's gorgeous to lay in bed and take a nap. <laughs> I feel like I have two modes where I feel like either I'm like, my productivity levels are insane. Like you're catching me in a, like I'm finishing like the press stuff. And like, after that, I just like take to the bed for like two weeks. Like I literally, I don't do anything. I go to like long lunches. I hopefully find a pool. Like, you know, I'm basically like, yeah, like a virgin suicide, like Lisbon sister wandering Los Angeles, like eating soft serve and like feeling vaguely depressed for like weird reasons and like figuring out how to like get a new idea. <laughs> Please don't slip into a depression. <laughs> oh no, but you know, no, but like whenever you release work, like you do get depressed. It's like you get postpartum. It really is postpartum because wow. it's, and, and I think, I think that mine this time around was much worse because I got COVID. I flew to New York to do press for Queers Folk and the book. I was going to have a book launch. I was going to be on The View, watch Kevin's Live, all this shit. It was the accumulation of the last two years of my life, like in this one week. And I got COVID literally, like I was going to be on CBS Good Mornings with Gail King. And I had tested positive in the waiting room with Gail, who also tested positive glam and then called me later and read me her favorite passages from the book, which like chic. Um, and it was like, it was really crazy because when it happened, I, it was so surreal. Like it was just like everything just, evaporated like the book launch was canceled the view was canceled and the view did not reschedule me i want to put them on blast uh, <laughs> and uh and it was just sort of like it was sort of like i think i was like in problem solving mode and just pivoting and like being like okay instagram live here we come you know against, like, against all medical advice i was just going live um and then i came home and i feel like it kind of cut up with me where basically i felt like i gave birth to twins but i like was under anesthesia like c-section vibes and then like it was like over and so when i came back to la like it was sort of like oh the magnitude of what that 
meant and not being able to celebrate my book in person because writing a book is so solitary and you really do live for those moments where you can be with people in person and celebrate it like it's incredibly meaningful and I didn't get it and it was a real it was a real bummer and I had to kind of wade through that sadness a little bit and now I'm fine but it was definitely like it was shitty it was it was not great would not no 100 that's like such a big moment that you're working to for so long like I'm so I know, sorry that's I know. but one thing is like I don't operate from like a scarcity mindset so I'm always like whatever I'm gonna be promoting shit for literally forever so like I'll go I'll be back on the fucking view even though they should reschedule me now and like everything will be fine but it was like I had to kind of just kind of sift through that like sadness for a little bit but she's okay, a life coach okay life coach I don't I know this, well like, you know but that's, that's what I'm talking about like I've always been a pinch delusional like I think you have to be mm-hmm. in order to achieve things where there's no frame of reference for anything you're doing I think you have to have a little bit of delusion like I and I do have a little bit of that I'm kind of like yeah I'm gonna do like you know what I mean so that's literally the episode that's literally the title of episode five or something it's like one of our episodes the title is be delusional oh really yeah Yeah. it's advice we've gotten on this podcast before yeah but honey like it's important that you like calibrate the right amount because like there's people that are full-blown delusional and that's just like sad and out of touch like a little bit goes a long way Using small doses. Small doses, honey. Otherwise, you start to lose the plot. You become spooky. Uh, so let's talk about the book. Because we're going to talk about both Queer as Folk Reboot and talk about just by looking at them. But I want to hold up the cover. Uh, is this very serene picture of skinny dipping, which does that even happen in the book? Is that a spoiler? No, it, but it's giving elevated horniness, which is like what I strive for. Elevated horniness. But it also like has this very like serene quality, artistic quality to it. Like it does not read like smut right like no it's it's dreamy it's dreamy yeah it looks and it's like a painting it's like it's really nice it's this guy sitting naked on the beach the um a novel sticker is strategically placed to cover up um, uh his butt yes and another man uh presumably his lover swimming looking at him and has a very nice blurb a very funny novel about falling for a fantasy and finding love for one's own self melissa broder yeah she's amazing do you guys read her no actually i Incredible. She's incredible. She wrote these books, Milkfed and the Pisces. She has this, um, she also wrote a book of essay called So Sad Today. She's she's made. You guys would love her. Cool. Um, so I feel like the reviews so far for this have been positive. Uh, you got positive reviews on Lost Culturistas, which is like pretty big, uh, pretty good. What's the word I'm looking for? Boast? Oh, I, the word's escaping me. That's going to make me mad. I'm going to edit this part out and make it sound like I talk fluidly. And yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. Let's hold space for you not finding the word. Oh my God. <laughs> Leave in the part where you struggle. Yeah. Come um, out of speechless. I found it. It's vouch. <laughs> Uh, no, it's pretty cool. I mean, pretty big uh, vouch. Yeah, no, it's it's it was nice. I mean, Matt and Bowen are so sweet. And actually, Matt texted me like like two weeks ago when I was in bed with COVID and had just finished the book and said some really nice things about it, which is so great because I I was watching. I love that for you. Um, because Poonam who is in specials also, and I love that for you. And Matt is so good, and I love that for you. I was like really really blown away. Like she's giving actress like it's it's he's doing great. So it was very very sweet. I love when 
gay guys can be like very sweet to each other. Like I think there just needs to be more of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being so sweet to us and appearing on this podcast with us. This is seriously. Amazing. Yeah, of course. And then Queer as Folk Reboot is also getting a really good reception. It got an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I think it's been a little bit polarizing. It's been mostly positive, but I think that people that don't like it really don't like it. But I think I think you know it's a very noisy show. Um, I think you know it stands for something and it's saying something and I think we're in an interesting time I think in culture where we have a show like Heartstopper and we have you know uh, Fire Island and we have these things that are very um, sweet there's a sweetness to it there's an earnestness to it and I think there's it's it's needed because I think that you know there was a I think the first kind of wave of queer content was like someone inevitably getting beaten by a baseball bat you know what I mean at the end so I the think, barrier gaze trope yeah so I think there's a, this sort of like need for like escapism and like wanting to be post-trauma and I think um, it's really interesting but it's also like and I, and I understand Understand that, and I think there's. By the way, I think there should be space for like literally everything. Um, but I think like the people that I think are having a hard time with queer folk, I think it is because it's not escapism. It's not. It's not utopian. It's. It's like we're dealing with real things, and um, we're not shying away from uncomfortable things either. And uh, so I, I really, I really believe in it. I really stand by it. I mean, I like. I feel like if you're not making something that's pushing the conversation forward, like what are you doing? Um, so, you know, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, but that's really interesting because I wouldn't have even known that there was like that you'd gotten strong negative comments because it does seem like it is overwhelmingly positive, but it like speaks it so is. much to how like that you can have like just an overwhelming amount of love and support for something. And then like what really sticks on you is the is the negative. Well, I actually I actually really like criticism. Like I never I never am like releasing something being like it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. So I actually really I actually really like that stuff. And like there's been a few things about my book where I'm like oh like drag me straight to hell like that's a really valid critique and but like in Queer Spoke, I think has had some valid critiques as well. I, I guess like I'm just kind of you're talking to me like right after there was uh, a New York Times review of the show where the headline is watching Queer Spoke but wishing I was watching Hardstopper, which is immediately like oh wow, yeah, it's like you're immediately pitting two queer shows who are that are so wildly different in their <laughs> DNA. Yeah, like, it's truly like it's like saying like um, watching Breaking Bad but wishing I was watching Seventh Heaven. You know what I mean? It's literally. <laughs> Uh, you're like then watch seventh heaven like what the fuck are you <laughs> like do you know what I mean and it was like it's it truly is this kind of mind-boggling review where the writer kind of pokes fun at how like woke it is and I'm just like okay and then talks about how much he loves Shit's Creek and then like once basically is like which is a great show obviously but it's sort of like and then talks about how much he's looking forward to like Neil Patrick Harris's show Uncoupled on Netflix it was like basically it's like an all over the place review where it clearly like wasn't his taste I guess but like it just didn't it wasn't like a true critique it felt like someone's weird like Yelp review do you know what I mean but it was in the New York Times so it was very very fascinating I think it it, it lent credence to this theory that like with Heartstopper like people are just really wanting this kind of like I mean I haven't even seen Heartstopper but it, apparently it's very heartwarming it's about you know these young gay kids falling in love there's no trauma whatsoever and it's like it's episode like, 10 of the podcast oh. or episode 11 of the podcast oh well <laughs> yeah so like 
And I think that's fucking fantastic. But I also think like to always compare like queer shows and put them against put them against each other is so weird and it's so backwards to me. Yeah, that feels uh, yeah, it feels inappropriate to do that. It also feels like that doesn't give you a lot to work with in terms of like constructive criticism. It's like well, it's like you're missing the point. It's yeah, like, exactly. If you're, if you're comparing the two, then you never really understood the show. Like then I don't understand. Like were you expecting Heartstopper? It's queer as folk. Like are you kidding me? Like it's honey, it's gonna be rim jobs for days, and it's gonna be <laughs> you know, it's gonna have a real strong point of view, and it's gonna be saying shit and you know whatever. Anyway, it's very interesting. Yeah, but that's a really like um, interesting. An important note I think about kind of the context of when this show came out right there's been such a push for yeah. like queer joy which you do get in this show like yes, undoubtedly there's so much queer joy there's so much I mean I, I just feel like I just want to make things that feel honest and feel, I just feel like part of art's job is to reflect the culture I mean you can honestly make whatever you want and there's virtue in everything whatever but I just wanted to make something that felt honest I think Stephen wanted to make something that felt honest and and was sort of punk in its attitude and kind of a brave and it definitely doesn't sugarcoat things for straight people it doesn't explain things to straight people which is the kind of stuff that I make it's gay stuff for gay people I'm not here <laughs> giving you definitions baby you know what I mean like either I'll google it you know what I mean um so I just think like we all were on the same page about that you know what I mean and I, but I think that's very true to the spirit of the show which has always been kind of punk yeah well and, and some other like important notes about the context of when the show came out is that it's uh first of all we like we truly still have like I say a pretty big dearth of uh, we've talked about disabled representation definitely so yeah. big dearth of that but also trans representation there are yeah. not that many uh trans characters in tv and you have um um, you have two characters in this that use they them pronouns you have a trans woman um, yeah. so it's uh, has a lot of representation that I think uh, in prior to this we haven't seen as much of and they're messy they're really messy but guess what queer people are messy when you're born into a society that doesn't value you how are you supposed to value yourself you don't think that's going to do a number on you you know yeah. what I mean? it's like so it's like yeah like these are messy fucking people but like anyone that's met a gay person or a queer person knows that we're fucking messy and we're complicated and we're filming and like it, do, it does feel like it airs a little bit of our dirty laundry I'm like oh no well that's I mean but that's but honestly I think also like yeah I think it's like uncomfortable for people to like see our ugliness being reflected back at us you know what I mean but, but it takes I, the right tone with it which is the, what's the important thing it's not endorsing it yeah. you know? no like you but, I, but I also but also like I get where it all comes from like I do like I don't think it like comes from a place of malice like I understand it I have empathy for it I have empathy for all like the so-called ugliness of you know what I mean like uh, you know I don't know it's anyway I I'm so proud of it and I think Jesse James Keitel acted the shit out of Ruthie like Ruthie's like fucking I mean she's beyond oh she's great she's so good and and Jacqueline Moore she was really we're jumping ahead of ourselves we're jumping ahead of ourselves we gotta we gotta (laughs) no you're good um but also another really important note of context is this show deals with the aftermath of a shooting and unfortunately that is just as relevant as ever I mean we've just and there have been new and important shootings since you wrote this since y'all wrote this so well you know when I read the script you know I was I was interested in it because Stephen had had a direct line with both survivors and I felt like it's very very easy for survivors to feel like a number like a statistic and for us to never get to know 
know them because we just move on to the next tragedy very quickly and no one really checks in you know what i mean there's no there's no insight into how people rebuild after the, a tragedy like that so that was really exciting to me because i felt like we we're humanizing these survivors in a way that i hadn't seen done before you know what i mean yeah 100 and yeah i think it's like as relevant as ever which is which is really cool and really important work i'm like uh there's yeah. yeah we'll get into it soon uh i think we should watch the show Woo! all right we'll be right back this concludes part one check out the next episode for part two thank you so much for listening and if you're enjoying the podcast we would love if you'd leave us a review or follow us at rainbow room podcast on instagram and tiktok thanks